0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Harm Badholz, who joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 Studios. He's the chief U.S. economist at the Unicredit Group. Great to have you here with us. Uh, Let's start with what I just mentioned there. Uh, There had been such optimism and enthusiasm for stuff getting done in Washington, D.C. It seems like we've reached a a pivot point here uh, where there's some realism, some skepticism perhaps, uh, that this isn't going to happen, at least not as fast as many thought.
2: Yeah maybe it's more it's more realism right yeah. now. Uh, be, I mean I we, I still think that the, what the market's really waiting for is a big tax cut. So I mean uh, to be honest the market does not care so much about the healthcare bill as many uh, many Americans. Uh, you know for global financial markets the, if it's Obamacare or any other healthcare system it, they couldn't care less. But they they know that the new administration basically set up the sequencing they first want to repeal or replace Obamacare and then continue with the tax cuts. So of course there's a ripple effect. If the healthcare bill does not pass Congress then that may have negative negative consequences as well for the timeline of the tax cuts. And so from that perspective, there is more realism. They are looking at it more in a a bit more skeptical way and and wonder, I don't think whether we do get a tax cut at all, but when.
1: Yeah, there's a fascinating piece on the Bloomberg uh, yesterday uh, about the order of operations here. Uh, you know, there, there, there are political motivations for doing the Affordable Care Act uh, repeal first, uh, but it sort of lays the groundwork for tax reform. Uh, there are elements, there are tax cuts in this particular bill, and I think there's a lot of political concern that if this couldn't get through, that would mean um, the the rest of the president's agenda would have trouble uh, as well. As you look at this process play out, what does it tell you about the, the prospects for tax reform?
2: Well, first of all, it shows the, the disc the disconnect and i think i think globally investors have to understand the 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 different dynamics of us politics compared to 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 what global investors yes, look at, yes. I mean, we we have seen during the election that there are topics much more important for U.S. voters than they may be for for international investors. And as I said, um, for many Republican voters, for for almost all Republican voters, um, the, this Obamacare has been really a, a, a red flag, and they want to get rid of it. And that's why it is politically important, I think, for the Republican Party to deliver. Because, I mean, they have been they have been, if you want, benefiting over the last now six years, I think, since the 2010 uh, midterm election, from Obamacare mm. um, have been able to to rally uh, against this gain gain voters so that's that's why it is so important for them to to do it first to fulfill the pledge to their voters, plus as you correctly pointed out, Obamacare has some tax relevant provisions so in other words if if they if the republican uh, administration would get the tax reform through, simplify the tax code, and then a couple of months later, all of a sudden the Cadillac tax and other things kick in, you all of a sudden make it more complicated um so I think, and, and now they have said they want to do it first, they need to be deliver because they can't say, you know, we, we, we changed the plan right now, they, they can't do yeah. it. So they have to come up with, with health care.
0: You just wrote a great piece on manufacturing, really, really smart with a lot of theory to it. Let me cut to the chase. Is it finally time for a national policy? on manufacturing if we're going to develop a little switzerland or a big switzerland with all the politics and mr trump going out and saying i'm creating jobs baloney do we finally need a labor policy to boost manufacturing jobs
2: first of all do you mean big switzerland is that germany (laughs) yeah that would be excuse me (laughs) sorry excuse Uh, me oh (laughs) i am why you help me here get me out of this Um, no i completely agree i but i wouldn't necessarily call it manufacturing policy because you know I think what, what the U.S. really needs is a system of, of getting the education house in order. We all, I always come back to that. Um, there's, of course, a group, a relative small group of the population being extremely well educated. But it, if you look at the broad masses, there is some room for improvement, to say politely. So I think that is where the government needs to step in. And then you can also think about the, the system of um, People may leave after middle school, that is very often happens in Germany, and then you go to a company, do an apprenticeship, and then you just you continue going to school, but you learn only the stuff that you need for your job. You get specialized experts um, for your field, and I think that is an important reason why countries like Switzerland or Germany or some other countries are doing so extremely well. They produce high-quality stuff, and that justifies them to, um, to get relatively high prices in the global market. Because, let's face it, the U.S. is an expensive country with a high GDP per capita, so the U.S. will never compete on a price basis with many of the other global players. It has to produce high-quality stuff, and that for that, you need a very well-educated workforce.
1: Why haven't we seen the apprenticeship model here? That was certainly something that was discussed at the White House when Chancellor Merkel was right. there. We saw with,
0: it with the president, excuse me.
1: Oh, <laughs> I spoke with... <laughs> yeah. there, I, I spoke with Mark Benioff of Salesforce, who was at a meeting at the White House before that that joint press conference with those two leaders. It's something that he champions. He thinks yes. is happening within his company and should happen more. Why Why is it not a phenomenon that's caught on here in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, I really don't know. I mean, I, I read a little bit about it as well. Some people say, well, that's because the, the labor market is not as strict as in in Germany. In Germany, you basically have the system: if you do an apprenticeship in a company, you stay there until you retire. So, kind of, it's an investment from the company side initially, and it pays off, it pays back for the company over the next. Three or four decades in the u s obviously the system is very different, you are very often employed at will, so if you do that apprenticeship, the company invests in you and then you get then you get a better offer from somebody else you leave so maybe the the incentive for companies to offer something like that on an individual basis mm-hmm. if you want is very limited for that reason, we would need something institutionalized so that everybody participates, so then you know then the incentive for one company is as big as for the other one. Because you have fluctuations, but maybe at the end of the day, you still end up with well-trained people. So it has to come from the top.
1: Tom asks about policy. We hear so little about automation, and you have a startling chart uh, in your most recent chart book looking at uh, – div- divided by education, level of education. Mm-hmm. If you're at a lower level of education, if you've been in secondary school saying that's it – Something like a 49% chance that your job could be right. automated. Why are we not hearing more about that? And how real is that threat?
2: I think we are hearing indirectly because that I, I, so I wrote last year a piece about robots because I wanted to educate myself. So that was part of the results. And I think, I think we are hearing about this, people losing the jobs, the losers of technological progress by looking at the polls. I think Mr. Trump, Brexit... All the polls that we see in Europe is a, is is the result right. of some of these losers of globalization and technological progress having been left on their own for too long. I think we are seeing it, and w- the chart that that you quoted is actually from an OECD study, and I was just happy to use the numbers. Um, <laughs> we do that here, yes, <laughs> of course. No, I mean, it's a, and 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 that suggests that that it will continue. Yeah. So so established parties or, or politicians have to find a way to deal with that because it is getting worse, if you want, before it gets better in terms of inequality. So technological progress is a good thing, but it produces winners and losers, and we have to take care of the losers.
0: Help me here, and this is way off script, but I'll I'll, I'll go with it, Herm. Uh, Help me here with big Switzerland. What did you detect within the body language of Chancellor Merkel's visit to President Trump? I mean, there was... I'm sorry, for Americans, it was lost in translation. There were little subtleties... And nuances we didn't pick up. What did you pick up?
2: No, I, I mean, I think it is very hard, and I think that that's that's uh, Chancellor Merkel's big strength, to to have that how can I call it poker face maybe mm. all the time. She does not or barely signal anything if she is in these meetings I think her strength is she's very well prepared extremely well prepared um, she knows exactly where she can give something and where she doesn't want to move um, I was it, it was interesting that she did I mean for her uh, given that it was Merkel her initial statement that it is better to, to to talk to each other than about each other yeah. I mean that was more clear than anything I heard from Merkel. If you're used to other rhetoric, (laughs) then you may not notice that. But for Merkel, that was a very strong statement and lashing out at Trump, honestly. But thereafter, she gave something back saying, yeah, we have to increase our defense spending and all that stuff. So she was willing to give that to the president. But I'm pretty sure, you know, the big criticism we have heard from Peter Navarro and and others that Germany has to move to change the trade surplus, that's not going to happen.
0: I would kill for you to write again on oil. I don't know, I don't wanna tell I don't wanna be Eric Nielsen and tell you what to do, but I would kill to get harm bundles from oil in the next six weeks. He is with Unicredit. Terrific research. Again, we protect the copyright of all our guests, even Michael Barr. We do not send out Michael Barr's news reports. All those Batman comics that that I wrote. Those are those are highly, highly protected. our bundles. thank you so much. I've been waiting for this interview because April 6, 7, mark your calendars. What are we calling Mar-a-Lago?
1: Gotta have a good the name. The golf house. I don't think they can golf. I think in light the, of what the, uh, the president, the Winter Chinese White president, has said about
0: golf, why says the Winter White House? <laughs> Don Strezim, will you be there at Mar-a-Lago golfing with the president and have the a leadership tea time? of China? Right.
3: I uh, I won't be there. President Xi is not a golfer, so I think it'll just. <laughs> what be, are they going to do? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, they're they're going to have a cordial time, um, pleasant, but no uh, no progress. And quite frankly, the problem is that President Xi has no idea what uh, the pr- President Trump thinks. Nor does does anybody else.
0: (laughs) One of my young troops, Yuyan, just sent me a gif, a GIF, whatever you call it, a little video of Chancellor Merkel looking at the president during the press conference. And it was suitably hilarious. We're not getting the same look from the leadership of China. Let me properly introduce you, Donald Strasson, (laughs) folks with Decades Evercore ISI, on his uh, China. What do they think of this president?
3: Um, They are, I'm... Pretty confident, astonished, <clears throat> as I think many people are. <clears throat> we have a president now who is behaving differently than any president that I can uh, <clears throat> I can remember. I think, quite frankly, he has some sound bites in mind, and but not uh, not many principled views. And without an anchor of that sort, you get this flopping around, this distraction, uh, a lack of focus. And I think the health care thing is just one simple symptom of that.
1: Mm-hmm. We had the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in Beijing in the, the Hall of the People meeting with the, with the president a couple of days ago, laying the groundwork, I gather, for that visit uh, to Florida. What did you hear from him uh, that might give you some sense of what's going to be discussed, or what might come out of that meeting in Florida?
3: Well, I think um, he focused uh, primarily on areas of agree- <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> areas of agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that's what that's what you would expect. We know there are a variety of conflicts on the trade side, on the uh, investment side, uh, North Korea and uh, on and on. So focus on what the two of you can agree to and uh, kind of kick the can down the road and talk more later about uh, what they don't agree on.
1: I've got to ask you about what's happening with the PBOC, the third day here of, of the PBOC injecting more money into the financial uh, space in, in China. What's going on there? How anomalous is it? And, and how concerned should investors be by what's happening?
3: You shouldn't be concerned at all. At all. Okay. This is, uh, uh, PBOC has um, more difficulty than many central banks um, gauging liquidity demands in the very short run. These episodes come and go as this one will. China is in uh, Draghi mode, whatever it takes for a good economy in 2017. This is their selection year after last year was our election uh-huh. year. So things will be fine.
1: You know, uh, we watched as a Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin went to Berlin and then to Baden-Baden, and uh, he was asked about labeling China a currency manipulator. He said that's something that will be discussed at these sort of semi-annual reviews within the Treasury Department. Give us your sense of the timetable uh, for looking at the Chinese currency, what you expect <clears throat> to hear from the Treasury Department.
3: A Treasury... Seemingly is going to go back to the typical schedule of April and uh, October reviews in which they uh, look at uh, various countries and decide if that country is or is not a uh, currency manipulator in their view. I think they will again conclude that they are not. I think Washington is is coming to the view that they have precious little leverage over China on trade and on uh, the currency. And so the surprise will be how little they do this year, not how much.
0: I saw uh, an article yesterday on the cost to live in Asia, Singapore leading the way for idiocy. Is China pricing their cities (laughs) out of competition with how much it costs to live there?
3: No, I don't think so. Um, It it has become a lot more uh, pricey, but the people still want to live in the tier one cities. and just like they do uh, in this mm. uh, in this country, uh, Boston and New York and L.A. and San Francisco are extraordinarily uh, pricey. But that's not uh, killing no. Houston and Chicago.
0: If I'm playing golf in Florida, April 6th and 7th, <laughs> <laughs> Don Strasheim is with Evercore ISI. Good
1: luck with the bracket as well. Purdue is uh, oh, still well, in Thompson bracket. In the, we're in this. <laughs> We're there. <So> go. Far. <laughs>
0: Boiler up. Boiler up with Don Strasheim. Purdue, North Carolina. David
1: Gurrow with Tom Keene in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. If J. Alfred Prufrock measured his life with coffee spoons, we increasingly measure ours with presidential tweets. Donald Trump tweeting moments ago, big day for health care working hard. And we'll use that as a peg for our next conversation here with Zeke Emanuel, uh, Chair of the Medical Ethics and Health Policy Department at the University of Pennsylvania, who had an audience with the President just a couple of days ago uh, at the White House. Great of you to join us. Thanks very much for being here. Uh, And without divulging too much detail of your conversation with the President, what did you want to convey to him about uh, health reform generally? What's working and what's not?
4: Well, I wanted to convey to him that, uh, as I said, in lots of other public venues, including the New York Times and Fox, that uh, I think the uh, Paul Ryan uh, bill in the House is not a good bill, and he should not support it. It does not realize his goals. His goals are, as he has said many times, he wants to, uh, um, you know, get coverage for all Americans, uh, and he has not said access. He has said coverage. And second of all, he wants uh, to bring health care costs down so that uh, health care is affordable to more americans he also says that he would like to negotiate drug prices because drug prices are too high uh... this bill does none of those things as we all know according to the cbo It uh, will dramatically increase the number of uninsured. Maybe 24000000 million isn't exactly the right number, but it's certainly going to be tens of millions of people are going to lose insurance. And uh, we've already heard from a number of insurers that if this bill passes, they are jacking up their premiums. Uh, And even the CBO said that by 2020, premiums will go up 20% then they'll decline only for young people and increase for older people. This is not a bill that realizes the president's objectives or the objectives that all of us should have for the health care system.
1: Let me talk about those objectives a little bit more here. I'm curious why, when we talk about health care policy, it happens to happen uh, in these very time-limited portions. In other words, it's so important, uh, yet we see this sort of being moved through Congress rather quickly. We saw the same thing with the Affordable Care Act. Before wait,
2: wait, 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 wait.
4: Don't, wait a sec. Okay. No, you're misrepresenting history, and I cannot let that go on.
1: Well, it was a nine-month process.
4: It was, excuse me, we started on January 20th and it, we passed it on March 23rd. That's a 14-month process, and this is less than 60 days. That it was not equivalent when we introduced the bill in the House. When Nancy Pelosi introduced the bill in the House. There was 116 days uh, before it was voted on. Here, there's 16 days. These are not equivalent. The Republicans are not doing what the Democrats did. We tried to negotiate. We had the Gang of Four, the Gang of Six, the Gang of Eight to try to negotiate with Republicans. They haven't even called. A single democrat to the best of anyone's knowledge to talk okay so this is not equivalent this is much worse all right I'm not gonna have the equivalency it's just like the Democrats that's false
1: you hear from the House Speaker however uh, that this has been something on which this party has run for cycle after cycle after cycle. He's rejecting the comment that you just made there, that this is something big forced through.
4: No, he, he's, he's run on repeal and replace, and as many of us have noted multiple times, he's never had a replacement bill. He's never articulated something until now when he had to go out there. The reason he never articulated something is because he got a terrible CBO score. If he had put in a bill before, uh, he would never. I mean, this score is devastatingly bad.
1: I I didn't mean for the the question to be offensive. What I intended to to get to here is it doesn't seem like it's very dialogical. It's hard for politicians to talk about what in fact is wrong with health care in this country and to work it out. Why is that the case? In other words, why does it have to come to sort of a crisis point like this?
4: Wait a second. I'm the policy brother. I'm the guy who thinks of what is the best policy for the health care system. And as I have said multiple times, I do believe there's a bipartisan I approach. I don't think the alternative is keep the ACA. Uh, uh, do uh, Representative Rand Paul's approach of. Uh you know, just repeal and no replacement or uh, your only other approach is Paul Ryan. There's other approaches, including a bipartisan approach that begins where there's overlap. And I don't know why politicians uh, can't seem to come to uh, rational, reasonable agreement. You know, you'd have to ask my political brother. He he, he understands those things better than I do.
0: He's a little occupied. (laughs) Zeke, we're going to continue. I want to do the next block as well, but let me ask you this. Mark Meadows got jawed uh, 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 chewed out yesterday by the President of the United States. He's from Western North Carolina. If I go down to the former St. Joseph's Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, or I go to your Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, let me ask the question of the same doctors at St. Joseph's and the doctors at Beth Israel. What's in this for the doctors? You're a doctor. You're like a real doctor. What do the doctors want out of this Donnybrook in Washington?
4: Let, let, me make, let me emphasize three points. First, the AMA has come out against this bill. Doctors are, are I think, very strongly against this bill, um, and the American public ought to know this. Doctors were very nervous about the Affordable Care Act. It's, they didn't understand it initially. It was complicated. Um, I run a panel every year. Uh, At Wharton, uh, where I teach um, for my students, I bring in doctors, and you know, the first few years after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, doctors were like kind of negative. I've got to do this electronic health records. I don't know what the payment system is going to be. Now they love it. The last few years I've been doing it, doctors are doing so much better.
0: Let's do this, Zeke. We're going to come back. Zeke Emanuel with us, fired up about what we're seeing. And of course, the drama uh, that we'll see today and into tomorrow in Washington. Stay in touch with Bloomberg News, in Washington, our good Kevin Cirilli uh, as well about what we'll see forward. Uh, on health care.
1: Uh, Zeke Emanuel, university professor at Penn, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and expert on health uh, policy. We're having a spirited discussion about what's going on on Capitol Hill uh, this week. Let me ask you about what the insurance companies are saying. We've watched uh, in these weeks and months leading up to today a uh, number of insurers pulling out of markets. We saw that with Aetna uh, and others. They say it's not uh, competitive for them to be there. Certainly this is something that at face is worrisome to consumers. What's the solution here? How do you get insurers to get back into those markets?
4: Right. You have to have uh, consumers in the markets. You have to have uh, uh, protect them against the uncertainties of this market. You know, any, two, any new health insurance market is a problem because you don't know who's going to come in. You don't know what their health utilization is going to be. Pricing a, uh, the product in that situation is uncertain. That's why we built in risk corridors, reinsurance in case people are more expensive than they anticipated. Those we're part of the, the uh, rules of the game going forward. We adopted them from the Republicans uh, who introduced it in Medicare Part D, um, and we need. And, and then Marco Rubio changed the rules. He, he pulled those things out and upset the insurance marketplace. We need to put them back in. And by the way, Representative uh, or Speaker Ryan's bill has a hundred. Billion dollars in a stability fund for exactly this kind of thing reinsurance, making sure that people are high cost, do not affect the insurer's bottom line. That will definitely, that kind of thing would definitely stabilize the market, and we believe in that. We also think you need to uh, probably adjust the subsidies. uh, And, uh, you know, my favorite approach is forget the mandate, forget the penalty if you're not continuously insured. Let's go to auto enrollment for people uh, like we have in Medicare Part A. I think there are those kind of changes that'll, you know, could substantially uh, get them uh, stabilize the uh, market. But we should also note that the CBO, when they mm. scored the bill, said, "Look, the marketplaces are stable. They're going to continue. They're not going under. They're not collapsing." That claim by uh, Representative Ryan and others that the marketplaces are collapsing simply false. Okay, fake news again.
1: Last question here. We heard from the president in that uh, speech before a joint session of Congress. He wants to have insurance available across state lines. I imagine that might be something he brought up with you when you visited with him at the, the White House. What's the rationale for that? How likely is that to happen, and what difference could that make?
4: Well, let, let, let's in, inform your listeners. Three states already have uh, allow insurers to come across state lines, Maine and Georgia, and I forget the third one. Uh, okay. Not one single insurer has taken it up, yeah. even though it's legal in those states. And the reason is it's complex. Setting up a network is complex unless you have enough uh, uh, people willing to buy. It's too expensive to set up a network and other things. So it's, mm. uh, And even if it got set up, most economists estimate it would hardly affect premiums uh, at no. all. So unless you're going to have a race to the bottom where insurers can come in and basically mm-hmm. offer these horrible medical insurance plans that are very skinny, it's yeah. not really going to do a big, a big job. And then if it does a big job, it would do a big job right. by depriving people of coverage for yeah. basic uh, uh, items. So it's not a solution. I mean, I'm not opposed to it, but it's hardly the okay. core of a solution. Zeke,
0: thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to speaking to you again. He's a laureate from Yale, Robert Schiller. Bob, good morning. We'll make it quick today. You wrote a book called Finance and the Good Society. Where did the good society go?
5: (laughs) Well, we've got the tough businessman that we wanted, I guess. People want someone who can say no, who can say you're fired. (laughs) They got him. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole different view. Well, it is a whole different. My book, Finance and the Good Society, was about the business world and what it can do uh, for society. Ultimately, we owe much or most of our well-being to business. And uh, so Trump is on that wavelength, uh, on the wavelengths in that book.
1: What's your sense of what's happening in Washington today? Uh there, there was such enthusiasm, such optimism that so much was gonna get done so quickly. We're not we're seeing that not happen. Uh give us your, your take on what's going on there. Is this anything different? Are we seeing anything new out of Washington DC today?
5: Well uh Unfortunately, one of my gripes about Donald Trump is that he uh, oversimplifies or implies that that it's easy to fix these uh, problems. We have a health care system that I applaud. It has some chinks in it. We can work on improving it. But the rhetoric is as if the people who framed it were were just stupid or uh, incompetent or biased. Uh, That isn't what happened. We have a, a system that could be improved uh but uh you know it's just not going to be so easy to fix it let me ask you
1: lastly here just about growth uh, and the degree to which all of this could affect growth that being a healthcare reform or tax reform or uh, indeed an infrastructure package if we were were to get that how optimistic are you that we can see the growth trajectory change in this country
5: well you know we measure growth by something called gross domestic product i i do feel that uh, loosening regulations will tend to boost that but the problem is that gross domestic product isn't the best possible measure of well-being for the nation. So things like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which were created by Dodd-Frank, might be uh, eliminated or, or handicapped. That would actually help GDP, but I think it would hurt the overall welfare. Uh,
0: Professor Schiller, thank you so much. Too short a visit today. We'll do it again for a much longer time. He's with Yale University. And, of course, a classic book on the exuberance of our markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gurra. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.